take your Bible or whatever you read the scriptures from and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, let me reiterate what Jim said in case those of you at home particularly um, didn't quite get on when he began. We are having the Lord's Supper at the end of our time today, so please um, get uh, some elements of your own choosing, appropriate elements, and at the end of the time, we, we invite you to be a part of our church family today, of our church body, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're going to stand in just a moment and read uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, the entire chapter, but let me just introduce and say a couple of things uh, before we read this. Over the past several weeks, um, months really, but intensified, over the last several weeks, I have read many articles dealing with the grievous situation surrounding the tragic, the senseless deaths of many people. I've watched the lawful protests, which is a part of the makeup of our country, and then as well the tragic aftermath of lawlessness, looting, destruction, the incredible polarization that is right now in our country. One of the articles that I read, I was intrigued by the title because of what I was preaching out of First Thess. The title was Five Words for the Moment. I really didn't expect a lot, but I was surprised when I got into it because the author really tried to take this, the five words for the moment, and he tried to turn it toward the gospel. But I wondered, at this particular moment, at this particular slice in history, we, we have those five words, but what about when this particular moment is past? Now, I don't mean to minimize, but what about the other crises in our country or in the world today or even in your own life? For sure, they might be overshadowed, but they are certainly not unimportant. And so when I read the article, I asked myself, are there words that will speak to all of us here today and all of you at home that can impact, again, this little slice of history that we have right now and of which we are stewards, by the way, but not only impact us right now, but are there words that can also last throughout eternity and ultimately my role, you understand, continues to be what it has been since the time that I came and preached my first sermon to you is ultimately to ask the question, what does the Bible say? And, and so I, again, going back to the article, I wondered what would the Apostle Paul say if he were standing here right now? And we don't have to wonder. Beginning this series in 1st Thess and 2nd Thess, we, we don't have to wonder because right here in the first chapter, I, I'm going to give another title if Paul the Apostle were writing this as an article. He would write the 10 words for this moment and beyond. Now let me just give you a brief background before we stand and read this. Can't go all the way back, those are for the first couple of sermons, but just remember this that this little group of believers in Europe now, in Thessalonica, they were brand new believers. They had had the word, listen to this, Paul had been with them for three weeks. And three weeks only, there was no way for them to go online or to listen to a podcast about how to become a good disciple. They had to take what Paul had shared with them and to glean what he meant when he wanted them to live the Christian life 
and he does that. And he was grateful that they were living a gospeled life in the midst of an incredibly tough situation. So with that, would you stand in honor of the word of God being read? And we're going to, I want you to listen now, and I'll kind of point this out, 10 marks, 10 words or 10 marks of genuine conversion, of genuine transformation, starting with verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and you remember that's Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That was the subject of the first sermon that I brought to you. Going on into verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. He was grateful. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, our, uh, our God and Father, your... Now watch this. These are the first three marks. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And here are the next three marks. They are the subject of our message today. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Mark number five. For you received the word, that is the gospel, in much affliction. Mark 6, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, Mark number 7, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only, Mark number 8, has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, the last two marks now, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And number 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, I thank you now that this message is for now. It's for Father's Day. It's for those of us who are dads and for those of us who are grandfathers and for those who are not. It's for every individual who names the name of Jesus Christ that we might know how to live, as Paul has said, gospeled lives. Help us, Father, now as we move through this and then be able to take it in so that we are transformed and so that we're motivated to make an impact in our world, starting in our home, branching out into every facet of life. We pray in the name of and for the glory of Jesus alone. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Don't want you to stand through my whole sermon. So this is a lengthy passage, but these are the marks of salvation. Now remember again, these are brand new Christians. How do they get it? Well, the answer is right in here. They listened to the Word. The Word came in power and through the Holy Spirit and through full conviction. And so listen to this. This was not some kind of a mechanical thing that someone just came in and gave them new rules to obey. This was from the heart. This was a new lifestyle. This was a whole new way of living. This was, how else do I say it? This was a transformation. Everything had changed for them. Not only the motivation for their life, but the direction of their life was being radically altered. Now, I've been around long enough to actually hear Christians tell me, particularly older Christians, but I find it in young people as well, they say this old saying, which is, by the way, this is not in the Bible, okay? 
Pastor, you just can't teach. Help me out with this, if you know it. An old dog, new tricks. What's wrong with that? What's wrong? Yeah, yeah, you're not an old dog. According to the Bible, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Totally new. The transformation has already begun. It is continuing. It will be complete when the Lord Jesus comes back. And that means the old has passed away. That's in the past. And behold, the new has come. He's making everything new. A little story for Father's Day. This is a preacher's story. I have no idea if it's true, but it really speaks to what we're talking about, this life transformation. There was a, 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 a little town years ago, a little church in a little town, and there was a man, a dad, who lived in that town, and he was an absolute reprobate. Everybody in town knew him and knew of the life that he lived, the kind of father that he was, or maybe I should say wasn't. And through the preaching of the gospel, I, I don't remember in the story if it was through someone who shared Christ with him. That's probably it. Maybe he saw the lifestyle of someone at work, maybe around town, that kind of thing. But that guy got, now this is a word we used to say, gloriously saved. Or as some old preacher said, he got plum saved. This just radically altered him. And so for several months, the his, his life was, was exuding this new life of Jesus Christ. And finally, the pastor of this little church asked him to give a testimony. And so one night, on a Sunday night, he was giving his testimony and tears were streaming down his face. And he was talking about the change that Jesus had wrought. Well, there was one of his buddies that had come in, slipped in, sat on the back row. And as he was living, listening, he was mocking. Yeah, right. Said that guy. Uh, no. He said it's just it's just a dream. And over and over he would say something. It's he's just dreaming. It's just a dream. And there was a little girl sitting right beside this man who was mocking and mouthing off. And she was looking up at him. And then she would hear him say, It's just a dream. And finally she looked up at that man and she said, Sir, that's my daddy. And if it's a dream. Please don't wake him up. It was not a dream. I'm not saying that these Thessalonians were perfect. But the, the word, the gospel, those two terms are synonymous. Had radically altered their life. And in a short period of time, Listen to this, and we're going to get into this more next week. The entire region. Now, we can just suppose how that looked. I really don't know, but the it says the entire area, twice Paul says this, of all of Macedonia. You get a map or look to the one in the back of your Bible, and you're going to see that, that here's... Here's Thessalonica up here, and then here's the whole region of Macedonia. Then there's the peninsula of Achaia where Corinth was. And he said, Paul said this, that after a few short weeks or months or whatever, the entire region had heard and had seen the reality of transformation because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. Folks, if, if, if all I have to give you is religion and rules and mechanics and all that, I might as well quit and, and just do something else. We're talking about having something that no one else, no other organization in this earth has. And so I want you to see, we saw last week, this was last week's message, I encourage you to go back, the first three marks of the Christian, you saw what they were in verse 3. Uh, your faith, your hope, your love, and the things that came out of that. Today, we're just going to look at, at verse 6, and we're going to discover, hopefully next week, we will finish up with chapter 1 and look at the last four. But let's look at these found in verse 6. First thing, he said this, I compliment you, Thessal Thessalonians, because you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's a neat word. I told you last week, I, I so love studying 
guys like the Apostle Paul and how they use these words. This is the Greek word that we get our English word mimic from. You know what a mimic is? Parents, do your, do your kids ever drive you crazy? When one of them says something and another, usually it's your feistier one, and they'll start mocking what the other child says, and driving crazy. Well, this is, this is the mimic. This is somebody that, that just does everything that the other person does. There's an old saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. That was not a Christian. That was Oscar Wilde who said that. And I've just seen this through the years. I was thinking of examples of this. When I was in seminary, a, a lot of times preachers, preacher boys like me, we, we had preaching class, and so the different guys would get up there, and they would be talking just like I'm talking to you right now until they got up behind the pulpit, and then they would start talking like this. Wow, I'm hearing J. Vernon McGee, or I'm hearing W.A. Criswell. There is a story, it's told to me as true. I'm not sure if it was at Southwestern Seminary, Seminary but you, you music guys will get a kick out of this because all of these young musicians were coming out of seminary, and this is back in the day when music leaders used to stand in front. How many of you remember that? Stand in front and they would lead the congregation, but all of these, all of these music leaders, have you heard this story? Anyway, they were leading like this. You know, I'm sure they were adding more flourish than I can, you know. So somebody asks someone, why, why do you do that? Why do you hold those two middle fingers down? Why do you pre... I, you know, I don't know. They asked someone else who asked someone else. And finally, they traced it back to seminary. One of the most popular mu leaders in the music department had had his middle two fingers cut off. And so rather than leading like this, he had to leave like this. Now watch they didn't even realize that they were mimicking him. Like father, like son, right? But the Apostle Paul said, you became imitators of us. Now, what does that mean, imitators of the Lord? What exactly were they imitating? Let, let me do just something here before we get any further. I, I want you to know something. We've been kind of alluding to that today. I, I want you to look at this verse from Scripture, Romans 1.25, and I want you to get firmly implanted in your mind, not for this slice of history, but for, for, from, from the, the time that God created the world, there, the fall at least, the fall of man. There have always only been two religions in the world, and Romans 1.25 talks about that. Everybody here is a follower of one religion or another. And this is why when you get to the ninth mark that you escaped from idolatry, you left idolatry to follow the living and true God that hopefully we'll get to next week. That's why an understanding of this is so important. And even for Christians, we can fall back into this. Look what Paul says here. And, and th this is after he's talked about the sinful lifestyles of those people who've rejected God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, watch this, and worshiped and served the creature. That's the dominant religion in the world today. That's, the re that's idolatry. Whether it's, a, it's, a, it's an image of a creature or it's you worshiping yourself, that is the religion of the world today, and it creeps in, and we have to fight it, don't we? The other religion is for those of us who have seen our sin. We've trusted in Jesus Christ, and now we worship the Creator, who is the living and the true God. That's why Jesus would say it like this. He would say, look, there, there's a false religion, but here's the true religion. If anyone wants to come after me, what's he got to do? Deny himself, the essence of the first religion, and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, what does that mean? That means increasingly you love God 
and you love the things that God loves and you hate the things that God hates. And so that's why it's so important when, when Paul said, look, here's what I saw. You became imitators of us because this is exactly what had happened in our lives. You became imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, uh, thought a lot about heaven. Some of you have too. The older you get, you think a little bit more about heaven, right? And so you, you, you kind of wonder, what's going to be like when I first get there and I stand before the Lord? Here's one of the things that I, I wonder if, if God the Father is not going to say to you and me when we stand before him. I kind of I like this. I got this from another preacher. It's not original with me. But, but could it be that the Father is going to take you, he's going to take you by the shoulders, and then he's going to step back and he's say, hey, stand there for a minute. I want to see how much my, like my son you look. Imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, imitate what, Paul? Imitate his persecutions, imitate his faithfulness, imitate a lot of different things. He says this at least three other times, imitate me. Now here, he's saying you are imitating me. At least three other times, he tells people to imitate him. And in the context, you've got to see this, of all three of these things, they each have to do, in the midst of suffering and affliction and loss, they all have to do with the gospel. So here's what Paul is saying to them. I see that you're imitating me. How? And it, it, the, the, the whole context proves this out. By seeing what I did, my commitment about the gospel, and you're taking that out. Why? Let me make a statement. I'll be making a statement like this throughout the rest of this message. Because Paul knew, get this, Paul knew that the gospel is the answer for everything. Second missionary journey. Starts in Acts 16. You don't have to turn back there. We've talked a little bit about this. And it's a, I, th I think that's a, they were all three very important, his missionary journeys. But, but the second missionary journey really defined Paul's, his mission to the Gentiles. So you remember they were going through Asia, through the churches. They were going back through the churches they had established. They were strengthening the churches. And people were coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one night, Paul has this vision. It wasn't a dream. It was a full-on vision. And a guy from Europe, Macedonia, that's in Greece, that, that area. But all of a sudden, it, it springs from Asia over to Europe. And a guy is saying simply these words. And it's urgent. He is saying, please come over to Macedonia and help us. So how did Paul take that? You, you, you just think about it. If you go back and you read that story out of, out of Acts 17, and you put it in here in our little slice of history, what could it have meant for a pastor or a preacher or a missionary or a person that's sitting out here and, and, and living your life as a Christian? What could have Paul interpreted that as being? Come over and help us. Well, he might have thought, well, gee, I, listen, I've, I've heard that in Macedonia, they're having all kinds of economic problems. Wow, I, you know what? I've heard that their government is a wreck. They've got this leader and they've got this, all, all these, the, these people in their Senate and all the rest of that. Maybe I need to go over and help them with that, their government or their economy. Or maybe they're having some, some upheavals. You know, we, we read about in Acts 16 and 70 all kinds of riots that were happening. Maybe they need me to come over and help with that. But here is what Paul, from God, interpreted that cry for help as. And when Paul had seen the vision, 
immediately. There was no conferring. Immediately, we, there was this agreement. We sought to go on into Macedonia, and here's the reason, concluding, that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Why? Because that's why Jesus came. I, I know, I've preached that he came to glorify his Father. That's the ultimate. But the, the one right under that, the penultimate, is that right when he began his ministry, he started doing what the Father had told him to do, and that is go and preach the gospel. And what did he tell us to do when he ascended back into heaven? What did he tell us to do? The five statements of the Great Commission, to go and to preach the gospel. So Paul did what Jesus did, and when he saw what the, Mas the, the, the Thessalonians were doing, he said, you're doing it too. You've become imitators of me and of the Lord, because that's what God has for the church back then and today, and for believers and because the gospel really is the only solution. Now, I, it, and, and, you know, we've all said these kinds of statements that maybe we, we, we could think about. I've heard these kinds of statements. Well, now, the church, the church can't pretend to have the answer. For, for this little slice of history. Or we could go back. Well, in fact, if we get the heart of the Apostle Paul and what he is saying here, indeed, we do have the answer. I don't want that to sound presumptuous, but that is just the Bible. We really do have the answer. Paul would grieve over problems in the churches. Well, we see it all over the place, don't we? Like the, the church at Corinth. Did he have grief in his heart over the church at Corinth and some of the things that they had gotten into? But now listen to me well. And always have the Berean spirit. Test me out on this. If you find something, come let us reason together. I can find no place in the New Testament where Paul grieved over what was going on in the culture except as it pertained with the spiritual bondage of people so as to preach the gospel. That he saw as the only solution to every problem. Now, I always write down little things that I would anticipate that I would say, maybe, or that I would anticipate somebody else would say, like, yeah, but that was Paul. You're right, but didn't he commend the Thessalonians? And he commanded later on, you imitate me. I'm preaching a very basic, elemental, biblically based message that, that I hope will serve as a foundation for other thoughts to build as stackpoles on this. If we really believe what I've just said, and I don't, I don't know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but if you really believe what I just said, then you will understand that ultimately human government, laws, programs will not solve man's basic problem. Why? Somebody said in our last elders meeting, one of our elders said, the problem is not the problem. The heart of the problem is a problem with the heart. And what is the problem with the heart? Just say it. S-I-N. The problem is sin. Let, let me go back, if I could. From right where we are here, this little group of believers that had never been to seminary that were getting it. They, they were fulfilling, they were imitating the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were going out and they were just broadcasting everywhere 
this wonderful transformation like that daddy. They were just living it and then sharing it, okay? But let me go back to the recorded, at least in the Bible, the first recorded instance of the shedding of blood, okay? I want to go back to the story of Cain and Abel and uh, just show you a couple of verses and make some applications out of this. Why that human government and laws and all the rest of that? Should we have those? And should Christians be, invol be involved in helping to enact good laws? Yes, absolutely yes. But the job of the church is focused like a laser. Let, let's go back and look. Cain was very angry. We, now this is, this is an interesting story. These were brothers, Cain and Abel. Everybody's heard the story of Cain and Abel? Okay, Cain was the oldest, Abel was the younger guy. And uh, they were worshiping and something happened. Cain got angry. Now I find this so wonderful that God, Cain was, was the offender here, but God had a conversation with, fame, with, with Cain. He was trying to be redemptive. Cain was very angry, his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? I, I, you know, this is one of the best models for beginning to engage someone, no matter what the situation is out there. Just ask them, how are you feeling about that? You always want to turn it to the gospel, but don't be afraid to ask someone how they're feeling. They might tell you this, I'm angry. I'm mad. God was acknowledging that, and then he, he, he put this in as an exhortation to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, if, if you buy into the religion that says you want to worship me and me alone, but if you buy into the other religion, then you're not going to do so well. Now, I want you to look at this. What's crouching at the door? of Cain's heart. What's the problem according to God? Sin. Listen to me. I've heard people say, oh, these people over here, these people over here, and it doesn't matter. People are wanting us to take sides. These people over here are opportunistic. These people over here are opportunistic. Let me tell you something, and you need to get this for your life. I need to get it for my life. Sin is opportunistic. Sin, right now, listen, sin is crouching at your door. And it wants to come in and take you captive, even you as a Christian. I'll show you that Paul will, will speak to that in a minute. But he said, you, you need to rule over this. Now, get a picture of what is going on here. These are brothers. They've got the same father and mother. The same blood flowing through their veins, and I could say a lot about that. The one race that flows out of that that we are all a part of, while different ethnic backgrounds. I don't know if they had differences by that time, or if they were almost identical. I don't know. Did they have a different tone in the color of their skin? Did one of them have brown eyes and the other have brown eyes? I, I don't know. But as you look at it, now listen to this, except for the attitude, what was the, the, the attitude of worship? You're going to, two religions in the world, you're going to worship self or you're going to worship God. Except for the attitude, what was the only difference from that passage of scripture? Anybody remember? Hmm. One was a rancher and the other was a farmer. And that had something to do with the animosity. We talked about this in our ABF class today. One of the guys made this observation. It was more than animosity. It wasn't a slap in the face. He rose up and killed his brother. I was thinking of some examples, and, and the best example that I could find, parallel, modern, a contemporary example. I was in my 40s, 19, 1994, when this happened. 
in 100 days in the nation of Rwanda. And I, I just got to tell you, I, I, had, I, I knew it was going on, but as far as caring that much about it and the reasons behind it, there were two tribes that had animosity toward one another, the Tutsis and the Hutus. Same bl basic bloodline, same basic ethnic cultural background. One had brown eyes, the other had brown eyes. There were some little slight differences. The Tutsis were a little bit taller. They had straighter noses. But guess what? Where the real animosity, and there were other things, one tribe was a tribe of farmers. The other tribe was a tribe of ranchers. Privilege, animosity, and in 100 days' time in 1994, Hutus slaughtered 800,000 Tutsis and Hutu sympathizers. Is racism a sin? Of course it's a sin. And the prejudices that lead to those kinds of things? But see, in the history of the world, we've got to go back and, and see how this unfolded. It went from sin crouching at the door to sin taking over the world. Because really it's an individual thing. And by Genesis chapter 6, you, you come from chapter 4 to chapter 6 and we see this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, because, they, because mankind had bought into the first religion, worship worshiping himself it was idolatry that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and what was God's heart toward that he was grieved and, and really I it, it, there's so much around us to grieve us isn't there what's happening in our in our culture what's happening in our world what's happening in some homes in some lives, and we should be more grieved, but the thing that grieved God's heart, we ought to ask this, what grieves God? And the answer is sin grieves God. People will still sin until their hearts are changed, and only the gospel can change or transform hearts because only the gospel addresses the sin heart issue. Here, here's the message for me, for the church, for as long as I pastor. Could be, I don't know, another day. Could be 20 years. I, I, I really don't know. But, you know, for those of you who've played athletics, you, you've learned, you, you've learned how to run plays and all the rest of that. And then there can be distractions. What, are your, what, what did your coach usually say to you? Brown, keep your head in the game. And that's, that's a, something that the church needs to hear. Keep your head in the game. You remember the name John Newton? How many of you remember that name? John Newton, the famous, the famous infamous rather, slave trader who was converted to faith in Christ, became a pastor. He pastored... William Wilberforce, who through, through his preaching, Wilberforce caught fire. Slavery was brought to an end officially in Great Britain. And there was a pastor that he wrote about this. He, he entitled this True Patriotism. And I want you to, it's a whole letter, but I want you to just listen to the first paragraph because this speaks my language. It may not speak yours, but it speaks mine. Dear friend, he's writing to a fellow pastor, allow me to say that it ex excites both my wonder and concern that a Christian minister such as yourself should think it worth his while to attempt political reforms. When I look around on the present state of the nation, 
He's talking about Great Britain. Such an attempt appears to be, uh, to me to be no less vain and foolish than it would be to paint the cabin while the ship is sinking or to decorate the parlor while the house is on fire. He goes on to say, Christian pastor has but one job, and that is to build the foundation of the gospel into people, and then they go and become change agents in their world. That's the first point. I didn't think it would take me that long. I've got two more to go. But they're going to be brief, and then we're going to do the Lord's Supper, the second part of that. So you became imitators of me and of the Lord. Do you see how that's so important? But there's something else. For you received what? What did you receive? The word, synonymous with the gospel. We see this in the context. And also the context is much affliction, more than taking in mechanically a set of teachings. Remember, Paul was using the Old Testament scriptures to show, to prove that Jesus was the Christ. This is organic, this is life transforming, and it was done in the midst of great the word is affliction, and, and it's the, a word that means pressure, a pressing, pressing together. They were between a rock and a hard place, and they received the gospel. And here's how they received it. They received it not the way that a lot of people do, not as the words of men, but they received it as it really was the word of God. And that God's word is never dependent upon circumstances. In fact, the word came to them in the middle of much affliction. So let me just ask a question. I've got five bullets of scripture to give you. And I'm going to ask this question and then show you what I believe should be the answer to that. What is, please hear this. What is informing your thinking? right now Fox News MSNBC articles you read what is informing now we need to be well read but let me give you a caution no no better yet let Paul give us all a caution about some of the things that are out there and I have more to say about some of these things some up some have already waxed eloquent, and I'm sure I will in the days ahead. But here, church, see to it that no one takes you captive by, this is worldly, earthly, human-based philosophies and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what would Paul give them, and well, what did Paul give them? We know. What did they receive? The word, the gospel. Was it going to be enough? Okay, four bullet scriptures, bing, 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 I, right here. You can write them down. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He said this to the Roman church. The next three are going to be from the Corinthian church. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God. How, how powerful is God? It's the power of God for salvation. We don't just mean the, the beginning, salvation, from the penalty of our sins, we mean right now the salvation, the sanctification that's going on and that will ultimately come to fruition at the coming of Christ. Okay, then he would go to the Corinthian church for the word of the cross. This is the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness. It's folly to those who are perishing. People, have, people who are not saved are not going to get it until the Lord opens their eyes. But to us who are being saved, it is the, here it is again, power of God. It seems like Paul had a theme about the gospel. Did he think it was sufficient for you? That's what I'm trying to get across. Not some dead book. Some people that lived 2,000 years ago. This is for us. It's the power of God for you, for me. Did I do that next one? We preach Christ crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then the last one, for I decided to know nothing among you except what? 
Now, this doesn't mean that he just stood up every Sabbath day in the synagogue and said, Christ crucified, Christ crucified, Christ crucified. He didn't, no. He was teaching them, but that was the theme of everything that he did, that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he said, don't, don't be thrown by what's going to happen. And it happened to the Thessalonians. It happened to virtually every church in, in that part of the world. They ran head-on into people they used to worship idols with. And I'm, talking, I'm not just talking about bowing down, but all of the debauchery, everything that was going on, and when all of a sudden, within three weeks' time, they stopped running with their former idolater friends, and their lives were transformed. Do you think everybody just said, oh, you are so great? I, man, that is just wonderful. No, they maligned them. First of all, they were surprised. Now, for those of you who became believers as adults and your life radically changed, this is my testimony when I was in college. Chances are you went through this. The first thing your friends did when you started running with them and drinking with them and whatever else you did with them, they were surprised. What's happened to you? Oh, I know, you got religion. I heard that more often. I, no, I didn't get religion. I got Jesus. And Oh, you got religion. No, my, life's my life has changed. But then after a while, they're going to malign you. Maybe not always to your face, but the, you'll hear back. Oh, here comes Brown again. Here comes, here comes Morrison. He's got some more of that Jesus stuff to give us. You know, they, they're, going to do, they're going to do that. They malign you. And then later, and I didn't write it down, but later on in verse 12 of this same chapter, 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal. They'll come after you. The gospel changes everything. Now, this was at the beginning of Paul's ministry. Okay? First Thess was probably the first book that he ever wrote. What was the last book he ever wrote? Probably. Second Timothy. Second Timothy. Okay, here, here's a question. We're going to get to the joy, and then we're going to mm, experience the joy by the elements of the Lord's Supper. Okay? Paul got to the end of his life. He said, I'm ready. I'm, I'm getting ready to be poured out as a drink offering. I'm going to die. Had he changed? Had he said, you know, when I was young, I was just kind of a firebrand, and man, I was telling you guys about the transformed life and the gospel being the only answer. Maybe when he got older, he mellowed out and said, no, there are other things you can add to the gospel. There are other theories that you can add that will help you understand. He didn't say that. In fact, he doubled down. And in second. Timothy chapter 3, he said, understand this, my friends, in the last days, difficult times will come. And what was his answer in chapter 4? He said, I charge you. And he went back to who gave him this message in the first place. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is able to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word be ready in season and out of season preach the word finally it says with the joy of the holy spirit how's that going to happen could i ask you a question for for you and your crisis or the crisis you just got through and i'll ask it if you're you may not know that you're getting ready to go into a crisis i don't know do you have genuine joy in the midst of your crisis? Not happiness. The stuff that's going on around, it does not make people happy. But can a Christian, can you have joy in the midst of it? Yes, you can. Who is it brought on by? 
It's brought on by the Holy Spirit. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul in Romans, as he ends his book, he says this, may the God of hope, the hope of the coming of the Lord, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you might abound in hope. And the Lord's Supper is a picture of this. The gospel. Christ's death for sins. His burial, his resurrection. One more thing. Suppose for a moment that someone came on the scene right now and said, I can fix this. He said it not only to the United States of America. He said it to every country in the world. Suppose a man, and I'm talking brilliant off the, off the charts, a, a, a man of charisma, one that you would naturally want to follow, who is not only an incredible politician, but also a theologian. And he came on the scene and he said, I can fix your problems. Would you follow him? We'll get to this as we go through the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this man that I've just described is called the man of lawlessness who will come at some point preceding the return of the Lord to make all injustice right. So be careful of whom you follow. Father, I thank you now that we can enter into a time of this demonstration of the gospel story. Christ willingly took on the sins of people just like me, just like the people gathered here onto his body and paid for them by his blood and by his broken body. Father, I now ask that if there is anyone here who has not professed that faith in Christ, has never seen before the reality of their barrenness without Jesus Christ, the reality of their sin, and they see it, I, tell you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That person would say, I am a sinner before a holy God, but I know that Jesus has died Calvary's cross to take my sin and to transform my life and to take me to heaven either when I die or he comes back. Father, may that person do that in these moments right now. And as we move now as the body of Christ into a time of partaking of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us to receive these elements representing your broken body and your shed blood. And we would do this with great joy, born out of the Holy Spirit. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.